Welcome to Awaken to Grace. Today we are in Mark chapters 8 and 9, and we are talking about breakthrough faith. What is breakthrough faith? Well, you know, just like the disciples that we're going to see here in Mark chapters 8 and 9, we are going to see how many of us, we have the faith to follow Jesus, just like the disciples did. They dropped everything. They left their nets. They left their tax booth. They left their homes. They left their lands. They left everything, and they followed Jesus. But after Jesus fed the 5,000, what a miracle that was. And even after he fed in the second occasion, he fed the 4,000. When they got into the boat, they had forgotten their bread. And the Bible says they had one loaf. And they were talking about how they didn't have bread when they had the Savior, the Master, the Creator, right there in the boat with them. You know what today's principle is? Many of us have faith for salvation faith that God has forgiven our sins. We even have faith enough that we follow Jesus. But when it comes to the daily provisions of life, when it comes to God intervening in our marriage or in our health or in our employment or whatever situation in life we're having difficulty, many of us don't have the faith that God can change things. We're going to see great lessons today from the response of the disciples in Mark chapter 8. I'm so glad you're with me on this broadcast of Awakened to Grace. What we're going to do today is basically we're going to take a thousand foot view of Mark 8 and 9. We're going to kind of take a bird's eye view instead of going verse by verse and phrase for phrase, which I most often do. We're just going to take a panoramic view. We're going to take a bird's eye view of chapters 8 and 9. Here's where we've been so far in the series. In chapter 1, we talked about the man with leprosy and the healing of that man. In chapter 2, we saw the paralytic, and we saw the roof removed and him lowered down to Jesus, and his sins were forgiven, and his disease was healed to the glory of God. In chapter 3, we saw the man with the withered hand. That's one of my favorite sermons the Lord's ever allowed me to preach. In chapter 4, we saw the silencing of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. That was one of my favorite sermons the Lord has ever allowed me to preach. Chapter 5, we saw three desperate people. We saw the man who was tormented by a legion of demons. And God set him in his right mind and healed him. Amen. Saved him and set him free. We saw the woman with the blood issue of 12 years. And the moment she touched the master, what happened? Her blood disease dried up within her, and her faith made her whole. And then we saw a little girl, Jairus' daughter, only 12 years old, and she died. 
Jesus took Peter, James, and John into the room. He kicked everybody with unbelief out of the house, and he gave them a front row seat to the miracles of God. And he raised that little girl from the dead. Amen. What a faith journey we've been on. These first five chapters, they are lessons in the school of faith. And what God is doing right now in the season of our church, what God is doing, I believe, right now in the body of Christ, He is increasing our faith. And why is He increasing our faith? Because what does the Bible say? When He comes back, Luke chapter 18, when Christ returns, who is He looking for? People of faith. And you look around, all that's going on around us in the world, are these not uncertain days? Are these not scary times that you and I are living in? How do you explain what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and all that's happening on the world stage? Let me tell you, my friend, the Bible is ahead of every bit of it. And the Bible tells us exactly what's happening. Read Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Read Matthew 24. Read Mark chapter 13. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Read the whole book of Revelation, and it will tell you exactly where we are and what's happening right now. And let me tell you where the church ought to be. Our faith ought to be exploding in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the Bible say when you see all these things happening? What does the Bible tell us to do? Look up, for our redemption is drawing nigh. Amen. What's going on? Let me tell you, God is increasing our faith. And as we see things unfolding in the earth, oh, it ought to be increasing our faith ever more. We went into chapter 6, and that was the feeding of the 5,000. What a remarkable story that was. And Jesus walking on the water. And then in chapter 7, do you remember, we met the woman that the Bible didn't give us her name. It just calls her the Syrophoenician woman. And this woman had a faith that wouldn't quit. This woman did not have a weak or a fragile faith. No, she had a faith that was absolutely tenacious. And she saw breakthrough. And then last week in chapter 8, Pastor Glenn introduced us to the man that, again, the Bible does not give us his name. We just know that God opened his blinded eyes. Today, I want to talk to you about Breakthrough faith. Breakthrough faith. Today, I want to examine the faults of the disciples. I've argued throughout the series that I believe it's not a belief, it's just an opinion, I should say. My opinion is that although Mark penned the Gospel of Mark, I believe the true author is Peter. I believe that Peter dictated this gospel and John Mark penned it. That's just my hunch. And I've given multiple reasons for that. 
It amazes me that the Bible shows all of the flaws of these disciples. And today I'm going to show you a major flaw. Today, if uh, the Holy Spirit will help me, I think that we are going to actually be stunned. I think we're going to be, uh, if you're anything like me, it causes my mind to reel at how the disciples responded to Jesus. If you look in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, there is yet again another story of Jesus feeding a multitude. In chapter 6, he fed 5,000, which, as we said, that was men. That didn't include wives and children. So you add that to the mix, you're probably looking more like 15,000 or 13, 12,000. Same scenario here, although it's a different occasion. In chapter 6, they all sat down in green grass. We're in a total different location here. The disciples call it a desolate place. Now, I want you to follow my thinking here for a moment. We're, we're going to kind of follow the narrative here of the disciples and watch carefully what happens. Jesus brings them in, and what a teaching moment this is going to be. The Bible's clear. This is two separate incidents, two separate occasions. And the Bible is very clear that again, on another occasion, he's going to feed 4,000. He brings the disciples in and he says, I have compassion on the crowd. They've been with me for three days. We have nothing to eat. I have to feed them. And rather than the disciples going, huh, are you kidding me? Here we go again. We've done seen this movie once. Let's, here's part two. All right. What's the master going to do? No. That's not their attitude at all. Instead of going back at the miracle that Jesus did with only five loaves of bread and a couple of fish, do you know what they say to Jesus? They tell the creator, the master, they say, how can anyone feed such a massive crowd in such a desolate place? Are you kidding me, guys? You've already seen him do it once. And you don't have faith that God can do it again? What lack of faith? Oh, it's going to get much worse. So Jesus does his miracle. Jesus says, how, many, how, how much food do we have? I mean, we've already done this. We've already been through this. And he says, how many, how many bread do we have? They said, we have seven loaves. Now think about this. They had more food with less crowd. And they still don't have faith. And Jesus takes the seven loaves and he takes a couple of fish. He blesses it. He breaks it. He multiplies it to where everyone eats and is satisfied. Now if you skip down to verses 14 through 21... I want to show you exactly where many of us are living today. I want to show you exactly how you and I are in the same boat as the disciples. They get into the boat. You remember in chapter 6, how many baskets were left over of bread? Twelve. How many baskets are left over in this story of the 4,000? Seven. Well, guess what they do? They forget their baskets. They forget their baskets. So they get into the boat, and in the boat, they only have one loaf. Now, how many of you know that one loaf 
is not going to go very far when it comes to 12 disciples. One loaf is not going to cut it. And you know what they do beginning in verse number 14 and 15? They are discussing the fact that they do not have enough bread. Jesus overhears what they're saying. And Jesus says, why are you discussing the fact that you don't have bread? And here's what Jesus says to them that I think the Lord would say to many of us this morning. The Lord said, do you not perceive? Can you not understand? Do you not have eyes yet can't see? Ears and cannot hear? Can you not perceive what is going on? And then look at verse 21. He says, and do you yet not understand? Verse 20, he says, do you remember how many baskets there were? Verse 19, there were 12. Verse 20, how many baskets just now? Seven. And then he says, do you still not yet understand? Friends, if you're going to take notes, I want you to note this today. The disciples were looking to the natural rather than looking to the supernatural. They were looking at the natural rather than looking at the spiritual. What is the point? They saw Jesus do mighty things. And these disciples were men who they chose to follow Jesus. Friends, they left their nets. They left their jobs. They left their lands. They left their houses. And they made the choice, I am going to follow Jesus. But do you know what? They didn't believe him. In the everyday routine things of life, like providing bread. May I propose that many of you and myself, we are at that same place today. For some of us, we follow Jesus. For some of us, we claim to be Christians. We read the word. We come to church. We worship God. We believe God for the salvation of our soul. But when it comes to intervening in life, when it comes to God restoring our marriage, When it comes to God healing the addiction, when it comes to God repairing our bodies, when it comes to God bringing that prodigal home, when it comes to God providing that job, when it comes to God taking care of us, no, like the disciples, we don't quite believe. Some of us have the faith that God has forgiven our sins. But we don't have the faith that God's going to correct our problems. Is anybody with me today? And so they're in this boat. Now I want you to think about it. They've watched Jesus feed 5,000 plus with nothing. They've watched him feed now 4,000 plus with nothing. And what do they have? One loaf of bread. And rather than saying, Master, could you take care of us? They're spiritually dull. Having eyes they don't see, ears they don't hear. In other words, they looked to the natural, the one loaf Instead of looking at the supernatural, the creator of the world 
that was in the boat with them. Friends, could that be where you are today? It may be that you have faith for other people. It may be that you have no trouble praying on behalf of other people. But when it comes to your life, when it comes to your circumstance, when it comes to your anxieties, your depression, your addiction, your whatever, fill in the blank, there's a lack of faith. I think we all have the potential to be in that exact same boat as the disciples. Now, you skip down to verse 27, and this is interesting because this is where the pivot of the book takes place. What have we said from the very beginning? Mark 1.1, John Mark makes clear who Jesus is. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he makes clear immediately to the reader that Jesus is the Son of God. All the demons who speak to Jesus before he casts them out, every demon that before he rebukes him and casts him out, and we've encountered the demonic in every single chapter thus far up through Mark, and will again here in chapter 9, every occurrence They recognize him as Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, the Son of God. But the disciples are the last to believe. I'm going to write a devotional, Lord willing, for Easter. Many of you get my devotionals that go out each week on Tuesdays. And I've been thinking a lot this last week or two. Do you remember what... They, the enemies of Jesus, I want you to think about this. Pilate, the Roman authorities, King Herod, the chief priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Boy, Jesus had a lot of enemies, didn't he? Do you remember what they did to the stone that they put in front of his tomb? Do you remember what they did? They sealed it. Do you remember why they sealed it? Because Jesus said in three days... I will rise again. Friends, the enemies of Jesus remembered his words when his followers didn't. Aren't we who are Christ's followers sometimes the last to really believe? And so, verse 27, Jesus is walking with his disciples and he says, Who do people say that I am? They answer, verse 27, 28, you, some say that you are uh, Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're a prophet. And then Jesus gets so personal and Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? You know what I love about that verse is Jesus always gets personal with us. You realize that? So you might be here today or you might be listening online and your grandmother may have been very close to the Lord or your mother or father or someone in your background may have been very, very close to the Lord. And because of that, you feel close to God. But let me tell you, my friend, do you realize God has no grandchildren? Everyone must be born again of God. 
In other words, Jesus is going to get personal in your life, and he's going to say, who do you say that I am? Am I your Savior? Am I your Lord? Am I your God? Do you confess the Lord Jesus Christ in your life as Lord and Savior to you, not your family, not your grandparents, not your family lineage? No, you. Do you know the Lord personally? And so Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And you know what Peter says? You are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. And I want you to hear me. This is the first time in the Gospels that it clicks with the disciples. Isn't that very special? In another gospel, Jesus tells Peter, flesh and blood's not revealed this to you. My spirit has revealed this to you. Isn't it something that the men who follow Jesus are just now cluing in to who he is? Do you remember the Syrophoenician woman a couple of chapters ago in chapter, or I should say a couple of weeks ago in chapter 7? She called him Lord in Matthew 15. She called him Lord three times. She called him son of David. She recognized him as the Messiah before the disciples really did. And this is the first time that it really clicks. Oh, let me tell you, precious friend, there's some of you listening. Hallelujah. Things are beginning to click. You're beginning to see. You're beginning to understand who Jesus really is. God bless you. Amen. And this is Peter's great confession. This is the pivot of the book. Up to this point, the whole eight chapters, smack in the middle of the 16-chapter book, it leads us to the disciples figuring out who Jesus is. Now, the next eight chapters are going to lead us, the reader, to decide, are we going to follow Jesus? For what does he say in the coming verses here at the end, verses 30 to, I forget where, maybe 36? What does he say? For you must take up your cross and follow me. He says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll one day be ashamed of you. But if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. Amen. Now we transition to chapter 9. and So follow my thread here. In verses 1 to 10, they watch for the second time Jesus feeding a great multitude. They get into the boat in verses 14 to really 13 to 21. And they're complaining that they have no food. When they've just watched Jesus feed multitudes. Rather than looking at the supernatural and the spiritual, they're looking at the natural. And then they see the blind eyes open and then comes their great confession. This is the Messiah. This is, after the la- this is after the man with leprosy, after the paralytic. This is after the man with the withered hand. This is after the silencing of the storm. This is after the Syrophoenician woman, Jairus' daughter, being raised from the dead. This is after the woman with a blood issue. This is after the demoniac man. I mean, come on. 
now they get it. Now look at chapter 9. Jesus is going to take his inner three, Peter, James, and John. They're going to take a six-day journey up a mountain. If you're going to take notes, you might find this interesting. Most scholars agree. They believe that this story that's called the Transfiguration happened on Mount Hermon, which is in Israel. It is a very high mountain. About, it's about 10,000 feet above sea level. It overlooks the Jordan River Valley. It overlooks the Sea of Galilee. Most scholars agree that this incident, this occasion, I should say, would, would have happened on Mount Hermon. They get to this mountain after six days, and all of a sudden, Jesus is what the Bible calls transformed, transfigured. The Greek word here is actually where we get our English word, a very scientific word, metamorphosis. Now, why is metamorphosis such an important Bible word? Well, I want you to get the image. The Bible says that Christ in all of his glory is transfigured. The Bible says that his clothing, his linens became so white that no one on earth could have bleached them that white. It was supernatural. I love this word transfigured, transformed, metamorphosis, because it is the same word that's used in Romans chapters, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And what does that say? Now say amen if you're with me right now. Listen to what it says. It says, brethren, I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or your true spiritual worship is what that means. Not conforming to the image of this world, but here's our word, but being transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. What, what does this mean? In Peter's epistle, he refers back to the Mount of Transfiguration, and what he says is even if you were to hear the audible voice of God, which they heard that day on the mountain, do you know what Peter says? The Word of God. The prophetic word of God, he calls it, is a more sure word in your life. What does that mean? That means that God wants to take his eternal word and he wants to absolutely change your life. He wants to absolutely transform you. It means metamorphosis, a complete and total transformation. Amen. The word picture is a caterpillar. Oh, it's about to come summertime, isn't it? And what are we going to start to see? Furry, ugly, earthbound caterpillars. How many of you just remember stepping on them as a kid? Ugh. And they're ugly, aren't they? 
not very appealing, are they? And they're earthbound. But what happens? They go into a cocoon. And in that cocoon is an extremely painful process, and it's called metamorphosis. And what happens in the metamorphosis? All of a sudden, that thing begins to get changed. And what happens? What was an earthbound caterpillar becomes a heavenbound butterfly. Amen? And right now, you don't know what's going on, but let me tell you what's going on. God is transforming you by the power of his word. And you're wondering why your desires are changing. You're wondering why your thoughts are changing. <laughs> You're wondering why you can't sin like you used to sin. You're wondering why you don't love your sin anymore. You're wondering why things are starting to bother you all of a sudden. My friend, God is transforming you. Amen. <sighs> By the renewing of your mind. Hallelujah. Let God do his perfect work in you. Let God change you. Let the word have its full effect in you. Amen. So back to Mount Hermon. <laughs> Christ is transfigured. Well, Peter, they're all terrified, the Bible says. Because guess who joins Christ? This is crazy. Guess who joins him? Moses and Elijah. Now, these are major biblical ramifications. Moses representing the law of the Old Covenant. Elijah representing the prophets of the Old Testament. So think for a moment in terms of past. Moses the law. Elijah the prophets. What did Christ come to do? He came to fulfill the law and all the prophets. He came to make the old covenant obsolete and make a new and a better covenant for God's people. Now, why was it Moses and Elijah? Oh, I've got a hunch. Can I tell you my hunch? Now, you know, a lot of times I share my opinion, and I try to tell you my opinion is not Bible, right? It's not a belief. It's just an opinion. You can decipher the difference, right? Well, let me tell you my hunch. I've shared with you for weeks why I believe Peter wrote the book of God, the Gospel of Mark, but let me give you further evidence, I think. <laughs> if you think in past tense, Moses the law, Elijah the prophets, now think in future tense. When we went through our massive study of Revelation, and we came to the two witnesses that are going to come on the scene during the seven-year tribulation. And let me just say, no, can I take a 60-second rabbit trail? What in the world is Russia doing right now? Let me tell you what they're doing. Don't be deceived and don't be fooled. It all has to do with Israel. Every inch of it. And globally, what, what is it has to do with oil? You watch. You watch and see. And it has to do with climate change. And what did we say in the Revelation series? If you missed the Revelation series, just go back and binge it. 
What did we say in the Revelation series? What is going to be the God? What is going to be the religion of the world during the seven-year tribulation period? Climate change. And there's going to be a link to oil, I believe, going sky high. Why? So that they can move their agenda of climate change even further. It's all predicted in the book of Revelation. And Ezekiel 38 says that God is going to put a hook in their jaw. And you watch what happens. Now, why am I getting off into all this? Because in Revelation, during the seven-year tribulation, there were two witnesses that come. Do you know who we believe those two witnesses are? Moses and Elijah. Now, let me tell you what I thought about this week. And I never thought about it until this week. (sighs) Amen. Help me, Lord. Help me to get it all out. My mind is going 100 miles an hour right now. All right, Chad. Slow it down. When the text says in Mark 9 that they conversed with Jesus, what that means in the Greek, the tense in the Greek language there, it means a long conversation, okay? So this wasn't a 10-minute appearance. This wasn't a 60-minute appearance. I, I don't know how long it was, but the Greek tells us, the tense of the verb says, this was a prolonged conversation. Well, let me tell you what I never knew. <laughs> when Peter writes his epistles, and he writes concerning the last days, how did Peter know everything that he wrote? That the earth is going to be done away with. That the elements are all going to dissolve. That God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. How did he know all of that? Because guess what they talked about on the Mount of Transfiguration? Luke chapter 9 tells us that what the discussion was about was the departure of Christ and the things that must come. What are the things that must come? I have no doubt. They talked about the witnesses of the last days, the days that you and I are hurtling toward. Woo. Amen. And if you'll read the Bible, it is more current than tomorrow's news. Let me ask you a question. Why does it say in Ezekiel 30, this will be the last thing I said, and then we'll move on. Here, here's my point. They talked about eschatology, the last days, the end of times. This is what they talked about on the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke 9. Why does it say, and let me show you how accurate the Bible is. Why does it say in Ezekiel 38 that Persia is going to be in alliance with the most extreme north of Israel. Do you realize that Ezekiel... Oh, I I can't get off into all of this. Do you realize that Ezekiel 38 calls Israel the center of the earth? Now, friends, how could they have known that three, 4,000 years ago? And what is to the extreme north of Israel? You You take Israel and you draw a line up, and what is to the uttermost north of it? Russia. And Scripture says that Russia and its leader, Gog, 
is going to have an alliance with Persia. Do you know who Persia is in the Bible? 35 times the Old Testament talks about Persia in the Bible. It's Iran. Did you know that Iran was called Persia until 1939? And it's all predicted. And the world, let me tell you, the stage is set. And what does the Bible tell us to do? Look up for your redemption is drawing nigh. The Bible says encourage one another with these words. Amen. So now they're going to come down from most likely Mount Hermon from this transfiguration experience. Jesus tells them, don't say anything about this until I've gone. And again, they just could not wrap their heads around. They could not fathom Jesus being killed. They just, they weren't there yet. Then they come up on a scene. There's an argument going on with the other disciples and the Pharisees, and there's a big commotion. The Bible says verses 14 to 29 is where we're going to wrap up today. In verse, so Jesus comes on the scene, and there's a father, a desperate father. He has a boy, a son, who has an unclean spirit in him. Somewhere, this boy had this demonic influence. It threw him into fires. It threw him into convulsions. Jesus had compassion on him. And Jesus asked the father, how long has he been this way? He said, since, since he was a child. In other words, uh, we, don't, we don't know how this happened. And the most remarkable thing, Lord, right now, Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us ears to hear this, Lord. The most remarkable thing happens. The man says something to Jesus that the majority of us talk this way. The man says something to Jesus that even though you're a Christ follower, even though you're a Christian, even though you believe the Bible and even though you sing the songs, you still speak this way. The man said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes because this is the premise of the day. While this man's heart was in the right place, his faith was in the wrong place. And there's some of you listening today, this is exactly where you are. Your heart is in the right place, but your faith is in the wrong place. And I want you to look at the response of Jesus. Verse number 23, I want you to look at how Jesus responds to him. If, <laughs> I would have loved to have heard Jesus' tone here, but I can feel it through the text. He, it's as though Jesus is saying, excuse me? If, ye, <laughs> friends, we're talking to the creator. And he says, if, Jesus says, no, if you can believe, then all things are possible to those who can believe. And do you know what this man says? You're talking about a course correction. Hallelujah. I want you to look at verse 24. Look what he says. Here's our word. Here's our word. Retrace all through the book. What's the word? Immediately. 
ethos in the Greek. What do we say? 45 times the word immediately is found in the book of Mark. And immediately, what did the man cry out? I believe, help my unbelief. Amen. Do you see the difference between this father and the professional Christians, the disciples of Jesus? Do you see his humility to say, I do believe Jesus, but help my unbelief? You know what he's saying? He's saying, I've believed as far as I can. Take me the rest of the way. Oh, what a great prayer to pray. Let me tell you, my friends. Let me tell you the difference. I don't want to be like the disciples in chapter 8, verse 21, that I've put limits on God. No, I want to be like this poor father who I may not have it all together, and I may not have every answer, and I may not know it all, and I may have questions. I may, but listen, what I want to say, I believe God, help my unbelief. I've gone as far as I can. Take me the rest of the way. I don't want to put any limits on God. Are you putting limits on God today? Are you looking to the natural, even though you're following Jesus? Or are you looking to the supernatural? Have you believed that Jesus has saved your soul, forgiven your sins, but you can't believe he can heal your body? You don't believe he can't fix your marriage? You don't believe that he can't break that addiction? You don't believe that Jesus can walk right into your mess and help you? Oh, what little faith we sometimes have. We who follow Jesus. Forgive my unbelief, Lord. I don't want to believe you for salvation, but not trust you for provisions. I don't want to believe you for my eternity and not trust you for right now, this day, this week, this month. Forgive my limits that I've put on you. Why don't you pray right now? Where have you limited God? Do you say, well, I know God can, but... Or do you say, I believe, help thou my unbelief? Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? I believe, help my unbelief. If you enjoyed today's broadcast and would like to hear more great content, you can always download our free mobile app, Awaken to Grace, where you can request prayer, find sermons, articles, blogs, music, podcast, 
as well as support us financially. You can also visit either of our websites at www.preachingchristchurch.com or www.awakentograce.com for more information about our church or our resource ministry. Thank you for listening to Awaken to Grace.